Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat, or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. In today's episode, I will be talking to Lauren Elise Peterson, a board-certified dance and movement therapist and body image coach. She joins us in this conversation to explore the transformative power of movement in healing and recovery, particularly for individuals struggling with eating disorders. Lauren has been passionate about eating disorder and trauma recovery for over 20 years and loves to help people feel better in their own skin through using recovery-friendly movement practices. In this episode, we emphasize the importance of listening to the body as a means of understanding and processing emotions, highlighting the use of bottom-up approaches in therapy for eating disorders. This conversation delves into the polyvagal theory and the significance of sensory inputs in cultivating a sense of safety within one's body, insights into the complexities of using movement as a tool for emotional processing, exploring bodily experiences without judgment, and practical insights into initiating a healthy relationship with movement. Lauren emphasizes the importance of patience and self-compassion in this journey towards embodied practices. Listeners are invited to connect with Lauren via her website and social media channels to explore her work further and stay updated on her upcoming projects, including her forthcoming book on using movement to heal the relationship with one's body. If you'd like to stay in touch with Lauren and on social media, she has Instagram and TikTok, which is at Lauren Elise Peterson, and Facebook as Lauren Elise Peterson. And her website is www.laurenelisepeterson.com. You're welcome to join an email, emailing list there and stay tuned with her about her upcoming events and her upcoming book. So Lauren, it's absolutely wonderful to have you on the show and it's such a pleasure to be talking to you about something that is also quite close to my heart, which is 
using movement and dance as an alternative or a support to therapy. So I'd love to know a little bit more about yourself. You can tell me about what you do as a dance therapist, uh, what led you to uh, the space in the healing world and, and you know, kind of what inspires you to continue. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I am in the United States and a through the American Dance Therapy Association, I'm a board certified dance movement therapist. And what that means is that I have a graduate or master's degree in dance movement therapy. And so the way that I work is sometimes verbal, depending on what the client needs, and sometimes very nonverbal. Dance movement therapy is a really great blend of psychotherapy and movement. When I found out that it was a field that I could pursue, I knew that that was my next step. I wasn't sure if I would get into grad school, but I knew that that was, if I was going to go to grad school, that was the one for me. Part of why I'm now understanding this is a little bit more complicated because I recently got an ADHD diagnosis. And so I'm going, oh, of course, I was drawn to the one that would be movement based. (laughs) But I had a bachelor's degree in psychology in undergrad and knew I wanted to work with people, knew especially that I wanted to work with people with eating disorders because of my own experience with that. And And yet when I thought about things like traditional graduate programs like counseling or social work, I just wasn't energized to go through the next steps of, honestly, I thought I would dance a bit more in my town and really enjoy the community that I had found in my dance and arts community and then go through the process of considering my next step. And then that's when I found out about the field of dance movement therapy. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. I would, I'll be able to do both, (laughs) stay moving, stay creating, and also uh, pursue my next step in my career so that I can help others feel better in their bodies, in their own skin. And I think you asked a bit about what led me to the healing world also. It's always been my passion to try to help other people. Uh, My family includes people who have worked in the mental health field for a long time. And so I knew that that was something I wanted to do, but I was also always engaged in the arts. And that's what I really got excited about was the arts. But I found that I was also really self-conscious in certain ways, like really self-conscious about my body. So that held me back from doing a lot of dance that I probably would have loved when I was younger, just because I was self-conscious. So I stuck more to things like theater and loved it. But then when I went into a bigger arena, I was nervous because there were people who were really, really talented there. And so... I always knew I wanted a blend of creativity and helping others, but it was my brief struggle with an eating disorder myself that really solidified that this is what I want to help people with. I want to help people feel better in their bodies. And the way that I know how to do that best is through movement and our bodies. So many things coming up for me and I'm going to, so I'm going to try and like, Oh, I get so excited. I'm going to try and like slow my pace down 
and ask things one by one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I genuinely, I absolutely love this modality. Um, I love the fact that you touched on, and obviously we're not saying that any one form of therapy is right for any diagnosis or anything like that, but recognizing that a person that has a diagnosis of ADHD might benefit as well from something to do with movement. And this kind of breaking away from some modalities in the past that were adamant on believing that a person who wanted to move in an eating disorder recovery process was desiring to change their body in order to move, you know. And um, it speaks very much into this relationship that you begin developing when you're in recovery from disordered eating that becomes less about wanting to change the body in a specific way and rather wanting to but rather wanting to integrate the way that the body is in one's life in a way that feels wholesome. I'm really curious as to how you gauge or whether it's something you lead or something that someone knows or something that you teach perhaps, whether someone is needing something more verbally based or whether they're needing something more bodily based. And then on top of that, a lot of the time when you ask someone with an eating disorder to connect or feel their body, it can be really like either traumatic or just non-existent. So how do you navigate this? How do you navigate a person uh, not knowing how to connect with their body, fearing that, and then actually moving into a place of fluidity where they can actually not only feel their body, but express themselves with their body as well? Great question. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's it's quite a dance <laughs> to use that pun intentionally. So when I work with an individual, because our culture, and I, I say culture in the States at least, we tend to be pretty verbally leaning. And that seems to be where a lot of people feel really safe. Not everyone, <laughs> but I often will start, especially when someone has a difficult relationship with their body, by getting to know them a little bit verbally first. And part of what I'm doing as a clinician and as a dance movement therapist is I'm, if I'm in front of them, I'm watching their body cues, I'm noticing the rhythm of their breath, and I'm taking all of that in as to how ready they are for me to even ask questions about their body. You know, the body is a very triggering topic for people struggling with an eating disorder. And so I try to be very mindful and gentle in that approach, and I give a lot of options. And so one thing I'll share with many of my clients is, you know, you've probably talked about these issues a lot. And one thing that can be difficult is moving from this more intellectual, cerebral experience into really feeling and transforming our relationship to food or movement or our bodies. And so I'll invite them and say, you know, part of the way that we can work together, if you'd like, is to start incorporating your body because it is a more efficient way to make progress as long as it's safe, as long as we take things slowly, gently, and with permission, because if someone's been struggling with an eating disorder, their relationship to their body and food and movement is all typically very complicated. 
And so I want the client to know that they are in control to give autonomy to them and choice about what we do, even regarding talking about one's body. So I'll explain to the client early on, part of the way that I work is incorporating body awareness. And sometimes when it's appropriate, we can use movement to help us transform our emotions. One of the things that many clients respond positively to is I say, you know, there might have been something that you felt that you didn't have a word for. And that is what dance movement therapy can be really good for is finding a way to bring expression to something that you might not have words for, or you might not be ready to talk about very explicitly. So as long as they know that they have options and that they're not going to be expected to perform because that's sometimes a misconception, the client typically will let me know how they feel about moving forward, incorporating body awareness or body movement. One thing, of course, that I also think about is if they are struggling with a more active type of an eating disorder or they're in that stage, um, which I know very well from my own experience, sometimes movement is an outlet where they're seeking to discharge energy or relieve anxiety, which makes a lot of sense and also in recovery isn't always the best thing for their health. So what I might do if I notice someone moving in that type of way in session is I might get really curious with them or invite them to slow down the movement so that we can really feel what it's like because that helps them come into their body into a more embodied state rather than just discharging energy to disconnect from their body, if that makes sense. Entirely. I mean, I think I have a history of exercise addiction. And so um, movement was always an expel or a, a getting rid of or a dissociation or a coping or something like that. Um, and coming into a space where movement is now a sen it's a sensory experience for me. I think that that's, you hit the nail on the head there. It's so important to be able to recognize the difference between those two things. Like when is moving the best thing you can do for your eating disorder recovery and when is it the worst thing? And, and I suppose that would kind of, you as the facilitator would be observing what state their body is in. Is it in fight or flight? Is it in shutdown? And, and how can movement facilitate helping them come to a state that is more regulated. Something I did a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine was we did a movement therapy workshop, which was very, very cool. And they were explaining a little bit about, you know, what the body might do in different uh, states of arousal or states of stress or whatever. And, and I'm just wondering, could you maybe touch a little bit on what is actually physiologically happening with the body and emotions? And then how do we use dance or movement as a way to process those things accurately? What are some of the things that might help a person who says in a heightened anxiety, what movements would you might introduce into that? Or maybe they're depressed or what, what movements would you integrate into that and why? So if you could explain a bit of the physiology, if that makes sense. Sure, I can definitely try. <laughs> um, one thing that the field of dance movement therapy really starts with is meeting the client where they are. That tends to be a, 
a pillar of our field. And so if someone is in that more hypo aroused state, really, really flat, low energy, disconnected, the dance movement therapists will often meet them there. So join them in some level of, you know, kind of low energy connection. And part of what we can do if we start there is as a therapist, we can really start to understand a little bit more about that person's experience. So going, okay, wow, this feels really heavy. This feels really low. And then from there, because we have a relationship with our own bodies as a therapist, we can start to think about what might this state need so that I can I can meet this person where they are, but at the same time help them with an attachment, with a relationship to another person, kind of come out of that state. Because much of what we're hoping to do is help someone through a relational lens. So give them an opportunity to be seen where they are, be understood, and then also move forward to whatever is more balanced for that person. So in the state of, um, you know, maybe hyper arousal, if they're really in fight or flight, um, I don't want as the therapist to be in a state of fight or flight with my client, but what I can do is I can notice that they are really high energy and maybe feeling really, really frantic in that moment. And so while I want to be very clear that the goal isn't for me to then abandon my own nervous system, (laughs) um, I do want to make sure that I understand where they are and then help them to regulate their nervous system. So we might start out briefly with something more high energy and then slow it down a little bit and breathe into that movement. Because for someone who's in a more hyper aroused state, (laughs) there's a reason why their body is wanting to move, right? There is a very primal reason. (laughs) And so we want to allow that for a moment But then, of course, keep in mind their recovery. We don't want to stay there forever because that's probably not going to help them. So then we might use movement uh, with the breath to slow down and start to become more aware of what's happening in our bodies. And I've found that many of my clients, uh, if they are in a more hyper aroused state, they know on some level that the maybe anxious energy that they've been trying to dispel hasn't worked, you know, because if we just stay in that state and we keep moving really frantically, it doesn't give our bodies a chance to really breathe and recover. And so as long as I can non-judgmentally hold space for them and say, it makes sense that your body wants to do that right now. And can we try this in a different way maybe slowing down and really connecting to your body so that you don't stay stuck there. And because I'm someone else in in relationship to them, if it feels safe enough in our relationship, that can help really transform what's going on in their body through just therapeutic attunement is what we would call it. Being a non-judgmental, hopefully safe enough person along with them in their experience. One thing that I can also say to address the physiological response is that 
When you think about moving through freeze, fight or flight, one of the things that can be really confusing for folks is that if you say, look at the window of tolerance, which is a pretty common image in the field of psychotherapy, it looks as if you can go from that low hypo aroused state into a window of tolerance where you're feeling connected to people and safe. But actually what really needs to happen is some form of mobilization to get you out of freeze into being able to relate to another person in that more connected state where we're able to feel our feelings, feel present. And so sometimes the body's naturally trying to do that through fight or flight. It goes, I can't stay in freeze, so I need to mobilize into fight or flight, which is where many clients are, but they haven't quite figured out because they you can't logically figure it out. Your body <laughs> needs to work through it, how to get from that hyper aroused state of fight or flight into what we all hope for, which is that <sighs> that nice grounded alert state where I can connect to another human. So movement can at times, if it's in safety, help us move out of those freeze states and mobilize our system into relational, calm, grounded states where we can make connections and feel present. I like to let people know that because a lot of the time clients that I've worked with have said, you know, I'm either <laughs> in freeze or I'm in fight or flight. Um, I don't know how to get out of like going back and forth between the two. And so I try to normalize that for them because it can feel like you should quote unquote be able to get yourself into a different state and your nervous system is really smart and it's not going to let us do anything that we're not ready for yet. And so sometimes being able to be in safety with another human and then also find movement that allows that mobilization from freeze <laughs> into a more connected state is a part of the magic that can happen through any type of therapeutic relationship, but especially if we know how to effectively use movement. That was a lot, <laughs> but hopefully that gives a sense of it. <laughs> no, I absolutely love it. Like, like I said, I could speak about this for days. What I'm thinking about for a person with an eating disorder is a lot of the time and I also use a lot of movement in my coaching with my clients. So if I feel that a, a client doesn't know what to say or whatever, I ask them, you know, hey, would you be comfortable trying this movement or trying this, whatever. And a lot of the time is what I've observed with people who are very early in their recovery is their bodies are very stiff, very, very stiff, um, very closed, very rounded, or maybe even not able to move that much. Um, and I remember being like that myself and then coming into the space of like fluidity, right? Where the body feels not only free, but it feels expressive. Um, and now something that was once told to me by a dance therapist was to picture water um, running through my body and allowing the water to flow continuously and not letting the water to stop flowing, right? So this was a beautiful visualization that, um, that I used. And I was wondering, 
are there any um, tools, like not, I don't want to say tools, that sounds so, that sounds so left-brained. And <laughs> are there any kinds of things that you would use to encourage someone's ability to connect with movement in their body um, in their sessions? Maybe you can speak on some experiences that you've had and, and how you've guided, guided people through that. I love that. And, you know, one of the things that's really great about dance therapy is we can use a lot of metaphor and metaphor gets into this completely other part of our brain that we know in a different way than logic, right? So it sounds like that really made a difference for you. And I've had similar experiences where I'll have this transformative experience just using imagery and visualization. And part of what I was trained to appreciate about eating disorder recovery is that many people, though I don't want to generalize, but many people in eating disorder recovery do really well with metaphors. One of the people that uh, I looked up to a lot in my early career is Anita Johnston, who wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon. Yeah. So really beautiful use of metaphor there and storytelling. One of the things that I use in my groups is, I think this would be a good way to explain <laughs> the different ways that we work with movement. If I'm in a group, which is a little different than one-on-one -on -one because of course it can feel vulnerable to move in front of other people. So I wanna be clear that I'm not asking people to perform and they always have options about how much they participate. But part of what we might do is what we call a non-verbal check-in. So try to show how you're feeling with movement or a posture and you know, if you think about it, an eating disorder really is a huge nonverbal communication, right? It's a way to s say in some manner, I'm not okay. Like I'm not doing okay. So I love offering an alternative to that nonverbal expression by saying, let's see if we can use our bodies in a different way to try to express this nonverbal experience. Many of my clients are used to in a process group therapy setting, verbally explaining how they're feeling. So I'll say this is like, <laughs> this is like that experience going around and checking in about how you're feeling emotionally, but we're going to try to put it into movement or a posture. And most of the time my groups are seated because there might be people who have movement restrictions or just psychologically, sometimes it feels more safe. Really, as you described that kind of contracted posture, covering up, not wanting to be seen, being seated is a way to feel less exposed. So we'll often be seated. And when the person gives their nonverbal check-in, which I always do some examples of first so that they know a bit about what I'm talking about, the group then mirrors their experience so that they embody it also. So I know that this is an audio podcast, so you won't be able to see, but if you can imagine these different examples, I'll try to describe them. In a nonverbal check-in, I say, okay, this could be really literal, like, and I'll put my hand uh, next to my cheek, like it's, you know, resting on a pillow and I'll make a sleepy face and kind of snore, like, you know, <laughs> like that's a nonverbal check-in. I probably will be understood as being tired, right? 
And so the group will join in this expression of like, okay, I'm tired. <laughs> and I say, that one's really, that one's really easy for us to figure out. But the goal isn't necessarily to be a hundred percent understood. You might want to be a little bit more abstract or metaphorical. So another option would be to, let's say, um, if I'm feeling really, really anxious in my body, I might know that that feels like lots of little fast muscle twitches that feel like, you know, my fingers moving really, really, really quickly and they go all over. Maybe they go to my head and maybe they go down my body and that might be my nonverbal expression. That might not be as obvious as the sleepy one, <laughs> but it gives them a chance to figure out a way to show what's going on in their body. And so the group might try that on, see how it feels. And then another level would be something like maybe using imagery the way that you described. I feel like image that's coming up in my mind right now is like being pulled like a piece of taffy. Like maybe I feel really, really torn between my treatment team and my family because they want two different things from me. And like, I just feel like pulled <laughs> in two directions. And so whether they explain that verbally or not, we can then embody that sense of, you know, like two hands coming together and then pulling apart. And through this these different ways of trying to understand how to use movement to express ourselves, my hope is that clients can opt in at their comfort level. So if they feel really comfortable with being understood, being clearly seen in, I'm just tired, <laughs> then that's an easy way for them to engage. If they feel like they have something that they want to express that maybe they don't have words for, some of these other ways of moving can be an option for them. And then not only do they embody it, but the group around them will also try that on. And most of the time, the feedback I get afterwards is people say, I feel like I understand you so much more now. Just from that one exercise, I understand a little bit more about what it's really like for you today. And these are people who spend, if they're, if this is my treatment facility group, these are people who spend all day with each other. So they already know a little bit about what's going on, but the movement adds this other level of empathy that really is important for them. It's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And as you were talking about this taffy that you were pulling, I just thought, wow, what a what a wonderful thing in this moment for our conversation for you to have expressed that. Um, and I'm assuming that that is kind of, if you were to check in with your body right now, that's what's going on for you, right? Um, am I correct in saying that? Um, let's see. Hmm. I'm like, let me answer you honestly. For me right now, <laughs> I'll say I have a little bit of, I do have a little bit of a pull because there's a part of me that's really grounded and, solid. And then another part that's aware that I'm talking to you and a little, you know, maybe not nervous, but excited energy. <laughs> yeah. And just out of curiosity, because like, I'm, I'm loving this experiential connection at the moment. How, how might you, I mean, I know we're going to have to describe it verbally, but how might you express that feeling in your body right now? Oh, I love this. That, what a great question. So <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those who I tend to I tend to go to these weird abstract places 
pretty quickly. So what I sense in my body is like, and I can't quite get it because I'm not on screen, but I'm like holding this, this little groundedness in my low belly, like my stomach. So it feels like there's this open palm kind of weighted at my low belly. And then, so I have two hands <laughs> and then <laughs> my heart area is all fluttery and excited. So I'm moving my fingers quickly around my heart. So that would probably be my nonverbal check-in today is like, ooh, I have this this like nice grounded weight with also all this like excited, fluttery, nervous energy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, people can't see it right now on the podcast, but I'm 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 doing those movements and I'm feeling like, huh, what does it feel like when I cup my hand and I put a palm like kind of under my belly and then and I suddenly feel this like Mm, I, I want to say, I, I guess because I'm a, a female or identify as female as well, uh, I get this kind of nurturing feeling of, of putting that there and it kind of feels, and then that the fingertips on the top of my heart kind of feels like a little bit exciting, like sparkling water in my in my body. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that's super cool. I think if I were to check in with myself right now, the first thing that came to mind, and, and I, I think I, I move first and then I like try to understand it next is I had this kind of like this huffing of my shoulders like lifting my shoulders up and pushing them down and like breathing out and going like as I like push my shoulders down and and I don't know what that's about but that's what my body felt like doing so hey let's (laughs) and so I I think what what I want to encourage whoever's listening to this episode now to do is maybe pause the episode um, take a moment to just check in like, hey, what's coming up for you in your body? Is there anything that like, you know, maybe it's a feeling that you are wanting to express you don't have words for, like Lauren said, um, or maybe it's just a curiosity of going like, hey, what sensations are coming up or what, you know, so I really want to encourage whoever's listening to this, just take that, take a moment and and pause or, or if you don't feel quite comfortable to do something that your body is saying maybe give a, a try for one of the things that Lauren and I have expressed um, maybe this feeling of a, a holding in your belly and a fluttering in your heart or a feeling of shrugging your shoulders and exhaling deeply I mean give, you know and and hey maybe it opens something for your process of healing and, and an introduction into movement therapy for yourself as well so yeah, super cool. And and one thing is, I think it, in order to do that, one has to be so vulnerable with oneself first and then others. Because even I remember when I started dancing in my in my room as a way to express my emotions. And at first I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> I was like, well, like I feel like a crazy person. But now it's like, oh, okay, I can't feel this emotion. So let me just express it through movement and it's it's super cool and 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 what a beautiful reframe as well with I've used my body for so long to try and express how I feel through disordered eating but now I can reframe that into something that is nurturing something that is helping me heal and something that is helping me process that's beautiful thank you for that and just to touch on your metaphors uh, with Anita Johnston like I remember listening to a Recovery Warriors podcast uh, years ago, and it was, I think, the first one I ever listened to, and it was Anita Johnston, and she's talking about the log in the in the river, and she's, <laughs> and and that just boom, like suddenly everything made sense for me. So if if people haven't listened to that episode or they don't know about Anita Johnston's metaphors and and how she works, then then really really go. I'll actually I'll put a link to that 
specific episode on these show notes as well. One thing I wanted to ask you is, let's say a person is not being facilitated by a instructor or a therapist or something, and they're exploring movement as a way to help them with eating disorder stuff. If they do a movement that feels triggering, what would you suggest then they implement or do in order to try and facilitate, uh, in order to try and cope with that trigger without then obviously leading to the eating disorder? Because I had a um, client once who went to a movement and breathwork thing and it was very active and it traumatized him into binging and purging, you know. So how would you how would you say someone could approach a movement that feels triggering? Gosh, that's such a good question. Thank you for that. First, before I get there, I just want to share the way that you did your check-in by listening to the body first. I'm so excited to hear that because that's how I do things too. I'm like, I don't need to understand yet up here in my brain, but my body has something to say about this. (laughs) And so then sometimes I make the connection and we would call that in therapy world, um, like a bottom up approach. And um, so I'm just so glad I was excited to see you doing that. I was like, yes, (laughs) that's the way I like to do it too. (laughs) So thank you for that. So if a movement is triggering, this is such a powerful question. (laughs) I think that it depends on the setting. So if I were going to say a workshop and I knew that it could be a really powerful experience, but I knew I was also not sure what to expect. So much can come up with movement and breath work. I think I would, if in the instance of going to a, a workshop or say afterwards, I would probably try to keep in my mind maybe three coping skills that were really simple that could help me come out of the present moment and maybe one safe touchstone person. So I'm thinking, you know, if this person is in therapy or has a coach, like a recovery buddy, it'd be good to just know that you have somewhere to just name anything that came up to, even if it wasn't right in that moment. I'm thinking about, you know, because I I work both as a a therapist and a coach. And so my coaching clients have apps, you know, where they can uh, contact me at different times. And I love that because it's something where you can contain that energy, but, but with boundaries for the coach. Right. And so if there's some way to just kind of set up a little space for yourself to be able to have a connection to another person so you're not feeling all alone, and then also maybe three top simple coping skills, that would be helpful if you're, say, going into um, an experience where you don't quite know what to expect. And I'll just go ahead and share some of the tips that I share with my clients about those coping skills. Some of the fastest ways to shift out of our triggered states could be with using cold like ice (laughs) or smell like some kind of scent that feels really grounding to you. And then also I have recently been using eye movements as a way to help myself ground a little bit more intentionally. So if I don't have my ice and I don't have my sensory stuff, like a nice, scented lavender lotion, then I also try to make sure that I use my eye movements to intentionally try to shift out of 
states of panic. One that I saw online that I really like because it's so simple is looking at an object and, you know, even even if you don't have an object like a, they were using a pen, but you could use your thumb for this. And you just look at the thumb or the object in your vision, and then you shift to looking behind the thumb, kind of blurring out the focus. So you're shifting from seeing it in the foreground to seeing it in the background. And I love this because you don't you don't necessarily need anything fancy for that. You just are using your eye movements. And there's something about the way that the eye muscles respond that can be really helpful. And I've found even if I don't fully understand what's going on with the eye muscles, trying it out gives me a sense of, could I repeat this in a moment of panic? Could I remember it and repeat it? I need simple, easy things in those moments. And so these quick tips, the scent, the cold, the eye movements and reaching out to someone would also be available if you were trying this on your own separate from an event, right? There are times when, you know, in my own healing journey, I use movement and I I think of this in different ways. I'm actually writing a book about this. And so I'm excited to share that. Woo! I'm excited to share that when it's done. But um one way that I think about it is moving to shift your state, your emotional state. So there's moving to discharge energy and, and like let yourself feel better, right? Release endorphins, go from feeling anxiety to joy. But then there's also movement to process something. And I think that sounds like the experience that you had with the moving like water. Because if we're if we're involving metaphor, we're also often in this other way of processing our emotions. And so if I open up that space for myself and I know that I'm I'm not just putting a band-aid <laughs> on my emotions, I'm not just trying to like feel better for the next two hours so that I can give a presentation, you know, something like that. If I'm really going to the depths, I might want to set myself up with a little coping skills basket (laughs) and remind myself that I can stop that process at any time. That goes for if you're following something online too, maybe you're in a workshop and you thought it'd be really good for your recovery, but all of a sudden you can't stop thinking about engaging in behaviors. It's okay to just stop and distract yourself. Use those grounding skills and stop what you're doing. But also that connection to someone else, I think could be really powerful. Just telling someone like, hey, you know, I went to this thing and the instructor was nice, but all of a sudden I'm really triggered and I'm just reaching out to you so that I don't go internal and try to use my behaviors right now. I suppose that speaks a lot into, you know, one of the most spoken about kind of things in the moment that I'm seeing in the eating disorder recovery world is uh, polyvagal theory and and seeing how how sensory inputs and uh, connection with others, eye movement, et cetera, et cetera, is, is so pivotal to the cultivation of safety within one's body. Um, so for people who don't know about that, um, please go and do some research. I am doing some podcast episodes on that soon, soon, soon. But um, one thing... Uh, you spoke about this focal shifting of an object. I've, I actually read that in a book the other day. I think it was a, a book by Alan Seal, Seal or Seely, something like that. And he he speaks about this 
this focal shifting as well um, as as a way to cultivate safety, as a way to really feel grounded, which is super cool. And and this this physical grounding, everything everything is so interesting because you know we always think the way to get out of the bondage of the body is to run away from it, to change it, to disassociate to whatever. But it's actually dropping into it. It's actually coming back to it. That is where we find the healing, which I guess is why eating disorder recovery is so hard because you're asking someone, you're saying the way to heal what you're experiencing is to do exactly what feels impossible. Exactly. <laughs> you know? um, so, so just compassion and validating people out there who feel like completely in a, unable to connect with their bodies and saying it's okay, it doesn't happen overnight and it's experiential, it's something you need to do mindfully and slowly uh one thing speaking again into you know i know that trauma itself is very associated with the way that our body stores memories you know and one thing that i did become very curious about when we first connected was the fact that research is showing how movement helps access memories we haven't processed can you speak a little bit on this I can, and I'll also say, I think we're just beginning to understand this. So take what I say with a grain of salt. <laughs> so one thing that I explain to my clients often is when we move in different ways, it changes our brain, basically. So this helps with neuroplasticity, which is wonderful because we need that in recovery, right? We're constantly rewiring the brain and needing new pathways. Um, to be created. And so things like movement, if it's done in a way that is not just continuing that same neuropathway over and over and over again, which is definitely what I experienced when I was using movement in an unhealthy way. <laughs> when we start to change the way that we move, it creates new pathways. Part of creating new pathways means that we're accessing different parts of our brain that maybe we haven't accessed in some time, which is where I would say those memories can pop up or be accessed. Um, so one of the things that's really kind of unknown when we start to incorporate movement is we, we don't necessarily know what's going to come up. And that's part of why um, I have such a <sighs> conflicted relationship with how folks now know more and more that movement and the body is this really important piece of the puzzle because I'm like, yes. And then I'm also like, oh, it could it could, though, bring up a lot. And so you want to make sure that it's safe and that the person that you're working with has a really great trusting relationship so that if it does bring up some things that you weren't quite prepared for, that you know where to go with it. So that's the, that's the incredible thing about movement and the body is there's, there's so much possibility, but also in a way, some vulnerability. And I think what you said is exactly it. It's, it's so important to incorporate the body in eating disorder recovery and also so challenging for very good reasons. A lot of the time, because there might be things that we don't even consciously understand that the body is holding. And so as we begin to move, one of the things that happens is that that unconscious or subconscious can bubble up to become more conscious. And 
that can be really overwhelming and flooding if you don't know that it might happen or you don't know, you know, it surprises you. But at the same time, how powerful if you're in a safe relationship and a safe container to be able to have that conscious awareness of what your body's holding on to. One of the things that uh, the metaphor brings up for me is that (laughs) metaphors are often a a way that our unconscious is working something out or it can get, it's like it can get hold of the, (laughs) the content a little bit better. I do a lot of uh, dream work in my personal life. And a lot of the time, the things that are coming up in dreams, we might not know consciously, but as we start to look at the symbols and get curious about the content, then we can start to make more conscious connections. Movement is the same way if we're working with expressive movement. Sometimes we don't know why we're doing this movement But for some reason, we know that there's truth in it. And then as we continue to work with that movement, then we start to connect the dots of, oh, that's why that was coming up. And that's really different uh, when we're working expressively than if you're moving in a way that's like, for instance, I, the way I began this whole journey was moving out of compulsion and dysfunction, doing the same thing over and over and over again. And there was a reason why my body and my nervous system needed that. I think I knew I needed movement, <laughs> but I didn't know how to get it in the way that I actually needed it, which was connecting to my body, being present with this amazing creature that I inhabit. (laughs) I just thought I'm uncomfortable in this body. I'm going to move until I can feel more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. I totally relate with that. I was the type of person who compulsively ran day in, day out, um, and never felt satisfied with it ever, you know? And then you take five minutes of beautiful movement connection and you like oh okay cool that's what my body needed and you don't need to go for the fifth run that week or whatever (laughs) I I love that you touched on dreams as well because dreams and metaphors and movement help us bridge that vulnerability gap where if I'm let's say for instance I'm thinking I'm fearful of this thing but I can't bring myself to say that I'm fearful of this thing I might see an image or have a dream or do a move that represents the fear of that thing. And I therefore can go, okay, I've now safely come into a space of vulnerability with this thing that I'm fearful of. Maybe now I can talk about it, which is (laughs) such a beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm going to end off with two questions. The first is, how would you encourage someone who is new to movement, maybe struggling with an eating disorder, how would you encourage them to start using dance um, and movement? And also, uh, I guess saying, you know, you don't have to be a dancer. You don't have to know how to move accurately. It's not a performance, as you said. But how would you help them? What would you suggest to help them start establishing this healthy relationship to movement as an embodied practice rather than a form of rigidity or control? The first thing that comes up is that if someone has no background in dance or any movement practices, first of all, welcome, because (laughs) it can be very transformative. 
one thing that has helped some of my clients is starting with something small and then building on it. So that could be the breath or even using, this is going to sound a little odd for some folks, even using something like a pen or pencil. And part of what we can do if we use something small and then build into it is we can titrate it. We can stop if we need to. We can start to watch what's happening internally. And as movement gets larger, kind of know whether or not that feels okay to us. So for instance, one thing that many of my clients will try, even if they're a little mm, uncomfortable with the idea of doing a big, expressive, modern dance type movement, <laughs> um, which most people are not ready for on day one, <laughs> but they might be able to take a pen out and a piece of paper and just start kind of moving, not to draw and try to express with art necessarily, because that's art therapy and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but if they can move and start to see the quality of their movement reflected on the page, that might give them a little bit more information about how they're feeling. So for instance, if I'm trying to show how I'm doing, there's a big difference between a very fast scribbly line and a smooth, slow line that I'm drawing. And sometimes it can feel less intimidating if you can see it on a page rather than just being present with it in your body. It's almost like it gets it out a little. So I would say that would be a step if it feels really intimidating to start to do this on your own, um, which Frankly, it is. And a lot of the time we need some guidelines and some structure to help with that. You could also try just, if you don't have a pen and don't want to try that, you could try this right now. Just try deepening the breath and noticing what happens in your body if you let that breath move into another part of the body. So like the heart lifting or maybe a hand reaching out. And then on the exhale, the heart drops and the hand follows. Just playing with how do I naturally extend the movement that's already there in my body, like breath, and see what happens if I make that a little bit bigger. That's one thing that you could start with. And then also, I find a lot of my clients, because we are very verbal in our society, typically, they benefit from trying that on for just a little bit of time and then maybe journaling about it. Sometimes in the journaling, those connections start to happen like, I didn't like that. Why didn't I like that? Well, I didn't like it because I could feel my stomach moving. Well, why don't I like feeling my stomach moving? Well, I'm self-conscious. And through then getting more information, it's not as overwhelming to just be present with it. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much for that. And I think it's definitely that that thing of moving from gross to subtle, you know, moving from something maybe external where I can orient myself and it's not necessarily with me per se to start, but I can first start feeling safe with something that I can observe or something that I can manipulate outside of myself. So that's a really beautiful and helpful tool. Thank you so much. If someone is wanting to learn a little bit more about the work that you do, maybe wanting to work with you directly as well, um, where can we find you and how do we get in touch? So my website and Instagram are both 
Lauren Elise Peterson. I'm also on Facebook and I have an email list. If you are on social media, you can connect with me to get on my email list so that you can stay connected to offerings that I might have coming up. But those are the best ways to reach me. You can also email me at Peterson at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible, like, like I said, I literally could speak to you about movement for ages. It's been such a healing process to go from a space of obsession to a space of expression. Um, what's the book that you are writing? Well, it's about using movement to heal your relationship to your body. Um, <laughs> yeah, woo. we'll probably be out next year. Oh, wonderful. I'd love when when you do release, please let me know. I'd love to get a copy. That'd be super cool. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to share it with you. It's very exciting. And this was really helpful for me to confirm some of those things because sometimes when I talk about this stuff, people don't 100% understand it. It's a little hard, but I could tell that you resonated and you knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that, I, and I actually wrote it in my notes here. It's like people sometimes feel a bit strange. You know, they, they feel like, what am I doing? Like, what, like, does this, you go to a therapist and you typically expect to like speak about your childhood and all of that kind of stuff. And now you're going like, Hey, let's flicker the hands and see what the, that helps with your trauma. And it's like, well, <laughs> I've, <laughs> trust me <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly yeah so thank you so much for being on the show with me today i'm sure people listening and if they haven't ever explored dance and movement therapy they'll probably be curious now um and it's been lovely chatting to you thanks for coming on the show thank you so much i'm so glad to know about the work that you do and about this awesome podcast thank you so much for listening to today's podcast if you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery.